You're listening to the ILLA podcast, the online home of lectures and conversations hosted by the Institute for International Law and the Humanities at the Melbourne Law School. Okay, well, I think it's nearly five past one here um, and nearly five past one where five past 10 p.m. where Oishik is, so I think it might be time to start. Um, so, I'd, of course, I'd like to start by acknowledging that I'm I'm sitting on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, which has never been ceded, um, and I'd like to pay my respects to their elders past, present and future. Um, and it's my pleasure to introduce Oishik, which I'll do very briefly and in a um, kind of more personal way than usual. I'm sure that many of you who have tuned in um, know him already. But Oishik is speaking to us from Boston, where he arrived barely 48 hours ago, so he's got every uh, excuse um, for his, you know, belaboured, uh, answers to questions or his loss of uh, thought for the moment. Um, and of we all appreciate, We, uh, I'm sure we'll appreciate that, though I'm sure that most of us are incredibly envious that you've managed to leave the confines of your home and um, and make it across the, the oceans. Um, Oishik's actually there on the coattails of Debelina Dutter, his wonderful partner who has a fellowship at Harvard for a few weeks to work on her first book um, based on her PhD. But today we're here to celebrate Oishik's, not your first book, but the first book solely containing your research and writing. Um, and I am lucky enough to have known Oishik in many of his avatars, and I use that word because it's one of Oishik's favourite words. Um, formerly, we shared um, his PhD years at Melbourne Law School, me in the role of co-supervisor with Sandhya Pahuja, um, and Oishik as restless student who was always engaged in a dizzying array of other things, other projects outside of his PhD, both academic and um, activist, and also always grappling with his insatiable appetite for reading yet more texts that he thought might further enrich his own thinking. Um, so over these years and since, we've also danced together, had lots of meals together, celebrated birthdays, share, uh, stared in wonder at the night sky of the Southern Hemisphere, um, been entertained by um, sulphur-crested cockatoos, even played cricket. Um, and it's been uh, most enjoyable and will continue to be, I'm sure. Um, Oshik's currently Associate Professor at Jindal Global Law School at, in Sonipat in India, which is just north of Delhi, north, I think, or not far from Delhi, whichever direction. Um, and he continues to be a very, very valued associate um, member of ELA at Melbourne Law School. Um, his book, the book that we're celebrating today, um, is, a, is called Violent Modernities, Cultural Lives of Law in the New India, um, published by Oxford University Press this year. 
Um, and my copy arrived by mail about a month ago, thanks to Oishik, um, getting the press to send it to me. But I understand the bulk of hard copies are lost in a container whose whereabouts is unknown. <laughs> um, so uh, another instance, perhaps, of modernity's violence. Um, so uh, while I very much hope that the container will be found and the book will be available in bookshops or um, through online um, uh, onla online book book distributors, um, I yeah let's let's celebrate its its existence anyway. Um, and I'd like to encourage, or we'd like to encourage people who have questions or comments to use the chat function. And we'll do our best to pay attention to that. And if you'd like to comment live, as it were, um, please just indicate that in the chat function. Otherwise, um, if you could put your question there, um, that's fine too. So the project, the project itself. Um, Oishik recognises in his preface that um, this collection of essays was never meant to be a book. Um, it's a, the, the book contains seven chapters um, that you've written, Oishik, between 2008 and 2018. And many of us in academia, I think, dream about the possibility of publishing a collection of our work. And um, you, in fact, many years ago encouraged me to have this same dream, which I've, I've yet to put into action. Um, but so... I looked with particular interest at how you put this collection together. And then, so I'd like you to tell us how the collection came about and why you've put it together in the way that you have. Um, and as I said, it's seven chapters or essays, as she prefers, um, divided into two sections. The, two sec the first section is dot, 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 the theoretical dot, 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 and the se second section is dot, 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 is personal, dot, dot, dot. So, Oishik, can you tell us how this all came about? Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, so just quickly before I respond to uh, these initial set of questions, um, thanks so much, Dai, for that um, lovely inauguration to today's uh, conversation about the book. Uh, but I would also like to thank Sun and everybody at ILA and friends who've joined and everybody from Melbourne who's listed in the acknowledgements to the book that, you know, uh, in, in many ways, it's a product of my time at Melbourne, even if um, many of these pieces weren't written there. Um, and, you know, that in many ways is, is uh, the beginning of my response to the first question um, that you've asked. I, I, you know, uh, <clears throat> there's this quote that's attributed to uh, John Lennon. I, I don't know whether Lennon ever said it. Something like, life is what happens to you when you're busy making other plans. Uh, so so I, I find that uh, particularly interesting to think about how this book came about. This book is what happened to me when I was making busy other plans. The other plan was the PhD. Uh, uh, and I was in, in, the, in the middle of the PhD, really. And 
you know, broadly thinking about what got me here to this stage of thinking about this project that I'm investing three to four years into uh, previous pieces of work that I have uh, researched, written and, and published. And they were mostly kind of disparate topics um, uh, where if I try too hard, I'll possibly be able to make some um, you know, see some connections, but these connections were were really not not apparent. Um, so the PhD process, uh, alongside the work on the PhD that I was doing, also you know um, made me start thinking about the trajectory that kind of got me to uh, got into the PhD project, and that's when I was able to see some subliminal connection emerge between uh, the kind of disparate topics that I have worked on. Um, worked on before. And that moment, that realization in many ways was, um, was serendipitous. And um, it helped me develop some sense of the kind of thinking that I had cultivated uh, up until the point of the PhD without necessarily having a research design or a roadmap of sorts. And that is what made the idea so exciting for me, that it really wasn't a plan that I was executing when I thought about the book. Um, so, so there's that bit of how, um, you know, the thinking about the book came about. But there was something else as well, which was, uh, which has to do with the period through which the essays were written, which is 2008 to 2018. Those years are, um, you know, significant uh, in the sense that that period in the contemporary um, history of India marked on the one hand, for instance, the uh, the defeat of the, the Hindu right-wing BJP and its return um, in, in 2014. And so uh, it's that political transition that kind of was, um, you know, was very much present uh, through these essays. Um, and I, even if I didn't pay attention to what that transition was doing to what I was writing on, um, when I look back, I saw that what I was writing had, uh, you know, was strongly influenced by the nature of uh, political shifts that were taking place um, around me. Um, that fructified in many ways into the PhD project, you know, which is more, you know, concentrates, you know, quite directly on um, the, the relationship between law violence and uh, Hindu right-wing politics. Um, but I did see, you know, that there were traces of this already present in, in what I was doing prior. Um, yeah. That's fantastic, Oishik. And I think that's maybe um, useful advice to other PhD students about looking, not forgetting, not leaving behind what they've thought about before, but finding ways to connect it with their PhD thinking. And definitely I agree that the, the context, the political context in India is um, kind of at the forefront of all of, all of these pieces. Um, so, but when you, so you came to write your preface to the book in some cases, many years after having written um, the essay that you include. And so the preface, I think, is a way, is your uh, effort 
to make visible some of the links between the pieces um, for the readership. Um, but I was struck by what you titled your preface, which was Negative Spaces. And so I'd like you to tell us why you settled on this trope as the title and whether the earlier Oishik, who'd written the pieces that would, uh, the, the, pie the pieces that are now part of the book, would have recognised this as a connecting theme in his work. Okay, so um, maybe I can uh, connect my response to this question to the second question that you'd earlier asked, which I didn't answer, yeah. which is about uh, the organization of the contents of the chapters mm -hmm. into the two parts. The first part being called, um, you know, dot, 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 uh, the theoretical, and the second part is dot, 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 the, uh, the personal. Um, so that organization, uh, in many ways. So let me put it this way. The, the chapters appear more or less in chronological form, um, in chronological order, uh, from the, the earlier essay appearing as chapter one to the, the, you know, the, the last work that I published as, as the closing chapter. Um, but the reason I did that was not to maintain chronology primarily, but but to demonstrate in many ways the kind of shifts that my own writing style was undergoing. So the organization of the chapters under these two heads uh, has less to do with the topics that the, the, the essays focus on and has more to do with uh, the question of, of style. Um, and in, in, when I say that, what I mean is that um, if somebody reads it in that order, and I write this in the preface that the book can be read in any order in that sense, because although the theme of, of violent modernities is present across the chapters, one, one needn't read chapter one to begin the book. There can be a discontinuous way of reading the book. You can start anywhere you want to, if you uh, did want to read the book. Uh, but what be becomes apparent if it is read in, you know, in, uh, in, in the chronological order in which the chapters appear is that my, um, my voice becomes far you know, more, more personal as the chapters unfold. Um, so in, in many ways, uh, the, the theoretical, um, you know, uh, the, the theoretical sources that enabled me to present my arguments uh, at a certain time, say 10 years back when I wrote the first piece, um, seemed inadequate as, um, you know, time progressed in many ways. And so uh, to, to be able to uh, bring in the personal became uh, one way of addressing that that inadequacy. Uh, but the question of style also had to do, and this is something that I didn't pay attention to, you know, when this shift was happening. But when I started thinking about putting the chapters together as a book, I realized that there are actually conventions already available to me to think with that I can draw on. So, um, uh, so what would it mean to think about scholarship uh, in the discipline of law that, for example, brings the jurisprudential and the autobiographical together. And, you know, for example, 
Patricia Williams or Margaret Davies were already, um, you know, uh, people whose works, um, you know, ably demonstrate how to do that and do that wonderfully well. I don't know whether I am able to do what they have done, the brilliant pieces of work, but I think that was the gesture in many ways that I was trying to um, advance. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the other reason why I think about, um, you know, the personal uh, in the second part of the book um, is to make the idea of the theoretical intimate, uh, not to think about theory as you know, a, a rarefied form of knowledge, but to think about theory as the language of the everyday. Um, that it doesn't necessarily require quote unquote expertise to be theoretical. Um, it's it's also you know something that I start my jurisprudence courses with, given that students generally are uh, strongly theory averse. Um, in in law schools or tend to be in in undergrad law courses um, is to think about theory, you know, very simply as a shared language of communication that will develop over a period of time, which is, you know, the 15 weeks of a semester, for example. Um, And and, and it's possibly limited to those 15 weeks that the language is possibly fleeting. You might not be able to hold on to that shared language after those 15 weeks, or maybe you will. Um, But that's what what theory is. I mean, if you speak, we we are engaging in some kind of theorizing. And the illustration that I use for students is that, you know, if, if you, if you've, if you've gone to a party the night before and the next morning somebody asks you how was the party and you say it was cool, um, you have begun the process of theorizing because when you say it was cool, nobody's actually going to ask you, did you measure the temperature? Uh, did you touch the party and you know find out whether it was you know cool or lukewarm or whatever? So clearly something that cannot be reduced to you know a, a, a certain version of empirical, um, you know, assertability, um, that is what what theory makes possible in many ways. Um, Sometimes this doesn't work well. I'm going to move you along because I want you to talk about negative spaces. Yes. Um, uh, Why why the preface Mm -hmm. is titled negative spaces? I think it has to do with the earlier bit of what I said about how the book came about. If we think about negative space, you know, very simply in, in imagistic terms as uh, the, the space that surrounds um, the, the, the object or the subject of, of inquiry or something that you're able to see and identify or, or spaces that are within um, those objects or subjects that we don't necessarily pay attention to. Um, so I think uh, violent modernities, uh, as the title of the book, is the negative space that I actually didn't see um, that was part of the kind of work that I've been doing, um, you know, through these 10 years of writing these oh, I see. Uh, seven, uh, seven, you know, oh, that's, pieces. That's a lovely so, so that's what helped me connect, uh, you know, the the seven chapters. But as I thought more about the significance of of that title, I also felt that 
um, there's a certain element of foreboding in you know in, in the tone of the of of the chapters. I'm particularly pessimistic, extremely pessimistic, and I have a, a affinity towards the the hopeless in um, in 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 the way in which I'm thinking about the events, incidents, and experiences that I'm talking about. So in many ways, I'm locating myself in the realm of the negative. Um, and to think about the negative as generative rather than as um, the negative as a place of lack um, in that sense. So um, I right. guess that's what I would say about right. um, lovely. why it's called negative spaces. So, Oishik, you go on in your um, preface to talk about five key words and perhaps not surprisingly, they're the five words um, that are present in your title. So you talk about violence, modernity, culture, law, and the new India. And I guess there's one I, one further key word that I would add, um, which is Hindut, Hindutva, um, which in the guise of secularism, which is also alongside of those five key concepts, um, a, a, a theme throughout the book. But now, though, I'd like to organise our discussion around four key tropes or metaphors, and the negative spaces is already one that we've referred to, um, which, which help to the tropes that run through these writings. And the first trope following negative space, spaces that I'd like you to talk a bit about is the, the spectacle or the spectacular. Um, your first chapter is, in fact, called Spectacles of Emancipation, and in your second chapter, which is looking at uh, representations of suffering, suffering children of um, sex workers in India, um, you talk about those representations creating spectacles. Um, and th this idea of spectacle, I think, is also connected to another trope that recurs, which is the, the history vanishing moment. Um, so would you would you tell us what work this trope of spectacle does um, in in your writings? In your okay. thinking? Um, okay, so uh, as you rightly point out, uh, this word does a fair amount of work in helping me advance the you know, what I'm trying to argue in chapter one and two. Um, and uh, I think it works for me in two ways. Of course, there's a, um, a theor theoretical genealogy uh, that I make a reference to in chapter one, particularly the work of the, the French situationist thinker Guy Debord. Uh, um, society of the spectacle, um, and given that uh, chapter one in in many ways is interested in advanced a certain kind of Marxist critique of rights, uh, spectacle seemed like a helpful um, idea uh, to work with. But I think at a more commonsensical level, even before I discovered Debo, I was I think still I was kind of toying around with the word spectacle. Uh, Debo ha ha happened later. Uh, and it, it was, you know, I was lucky that, you know, I, I found that word resonating with something that uh, somebody, uh, you know, 
far more, you know, somebody really important has already said it made my work easier, <laughs> I think. Um, but I was actually thinking about the work that, the work of optics in the way in which rights projects are advanced. Um, and uh, the first chapter is interested in thinking about a particular period in um, India's, uh, you know, in a particular period in uh, India's contemporary history, uh, where it was a secular government, or at least uh, an, a government that called itself secular was in power. So this isn't the Hindu right-wing BJP. Uh, uh, secularism was a commitment that was advanced in the Congress Party's um, you know, uh, parties manifesto when it came to power. Um, and it was supposed to be a, a government committed to a certain version of human-centric development, so on and so forth. So it was it, it, it was very heavily invested in marking itself as being different from uh, the right-wing BJP. And uh, to demonstrate how it will um, live up to that commitment, what the Congress Party did at that time was it brought together a group of eminent persons, uh, which comprised really well-known economists and activists and lawyers, and it was a great group of people. Um, and on uh, the you know the recommendations of of this group, the the party. Uh, um, the coalition that it headed went into a legislative overdrive. So one of the ways in which it wanted to demonstrate its commitment to rights was to continuously pass uh, laws, progressive laws uh, that were meant to uh, protect and recognize um, rights of marginalized uh, groups and communities. Now, this is a good story. It's a story about, you know, what, what would it mean for a party to demonstrate its commitment to um, a certain kind of um, human rights. Um, but it did appear to me that while all of this was happening, on the one hand, uh, all of these very committed progressive moves through uh, uh, an overdrive, uh, through a legislative overdrive was happening on the one hand, the, the state was increasingly getting more militarized. Uh, the violence on um, indigenous or Adivasi populations in the name of, you know, setting up, uh, uh, you know, aluminium mines, uh, so on and so forth, was happening parallelly with all of these very progressive legislations protecting socioeconomic uh, rights. Um, and so, so what I thought about was the, the, the progressive legislation front then became the spectacle that produced a certain kind of history vanishing moment. It kind of blinded you to the violence of the state um, in a way where the state could justify its goodness on the basis of all of these laws that it was continuously um, enacting. Um, so the spectacle metaphor works in that way in the first chapter. Um, it gains, you know, a more visual uh, significance in the second chapter on children of sex workers, where we look at how um, documentary films and international human rights campaigns that target 
the rescue of uh, children of sex workers, particularly in, um, in, in, in the southern parts of the world, also use a certain kind of spectacular trope of suffering. Um, and one of the things that we were interested in, the second chapters co-written by me and, and Debolina, um, uh, the chapter came out of a film that we were working on, on children of sex workers, is that as, you know, um, as astute um, researchers, activists in the field, uh, we thought that we were immune to spectacles of this kind, that we were able to see through the spectacle of uh, you know, the, the liberal representation of suffering in human rights campaigns, but we in fact weren't. So the seductive nature of spectacles are so powerful that it can in fact blind the most critical amongst us. And so, so, the, so the second chapter in many ways is also a self-reflexive gesture on our part, is to, uh, is to point at how, where we failed in seeing how the spectacle work and our, our discussion of the Oscar-winning documentary Born into Brothels, you know, in, in many ways demonstrates that, that we didn't actually see what was wrong with the film until the children of sex workers we were working with pointed it out to us. Uh, so that was the kind of, the, the, that was the work that the work spectacle was doing for us in the, uh, in the second chapter. Yes, and you mentioned failure. That's another trope that um, reoccurs through the book, but we might get to say a bit more about that in a minute. Um, the second trope that really struck me was your references to the everyday or the quotidian, and uh, particularly, again, this is back in Chapter 1 still, um, the, and I guess the everyday or the quotidian is the unspectacular, um, you say hope lies in the unremarkable quotidian. Which would you like to say something more about the quotidian and how you see it as a location of hope? Yeah, I mean, so there's a kind of broad sense of where that that commitment uh, emerges from, and I would say it it, it broadly emerges from a disillusionment with. Uh, the promise of revolution uh, in leftist politics and has a lot to do with the state in India that I come from, which is West Bengal, which has had um, the world's longest running, uninterrupted uh, running, um, democratically elected communist government that was in power for uh, 34 years. Um, and in, in many ways, uh, uh, growing up in a communist state uh, did instill, even if not in the form of propaganda, but still a certain way of thinking about the world around you. But it also demonstrated um, the violence that that came with that communist promise in 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 many ways. And um, it, it, you know, if one looks at the history of the communist movement in India, one can actually see that. The, the Communist Party's turn as, at a certain time towards, you know, uh, contesting parliamentary elections was thought of as a betrayal of the, of the communist commitment, which resulted in the birth of the Maoist movement in India. It's referred to as uh, the, the Naxalite movement um, 
so, so, so broadly, that was one um, one idea that you know pushed me to think about the everyday and the ordinary, which is if if the revolutionary promise in many ways uh, seems to have been frustrated, um, what what does one hold on to? Um, you know, the 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 easy route is to hold on to the promise of liberalism, which I guess many of us do, even if we don't want to, right? Um, it's it's the double bind that we live in, which is that we we um, we cannot not let go of uh, liberalism's promises, even if we even if we would want to, um, uh, even if we worry about what its consequences might be. Um, so to escape that trap, that trap of you know the communist promise failing, and what takes its place is a certain version of liberalism, or at least a created version of liberalism that is more. Um, you know, uh, that is more communism adjacent. Um, you know, um, I, I think we make up our versions of communism to make liberalism more amenable in, in, in certain ways. And so uh, to escape that trap, um, I wanted to think about the everyday and the ordinary. Um, and there were certain interesting um, resources that you know, propelled that thinking. And I make a mention of some of those in that opening chapter, one being the work of uh, the uh, the sociologist Asif Bayat, who wrote about the Middle East and uses an idea called non-movements um, as a way of thinking about mobilization, where it's not strategies and tactics and the standard, you know, uh, you know, the standard elements of organizing that go into the making of a movement. Um, but I also, for example, you know, in law, um, you know, learning from an idea like, you know, what would it mean to step outside of thinking in the paranoid structuralist mode? And here I'm thinking about Duncan Kennedy or how Haley takes up, Janet Haley takes up Duncan Kennedy. So in, in many ways, uh, uh, to think about the quotidian and the everyday was to attend to those minor forms of negotiations that, uh, you know, uh, a non-revolutionary politics, but a politics nevertheless, might in fact be enacting. Um, so it is not, it isn't necessarily less political or apolitical, or it is not a depoliticizing move if one, you know, uh, attends to uh, smaller things, uh, right. ordinary things. Yeah. Um, it's this kind of knowledge, these kind of knowledges that get invisibilized by this, the spectacular. Right, yeah. and the spectacle is not just capitalism spectacle on the one hand that one needs to resist. I think it's also a certain uh, narrative of the spectacle of revolution as well that produces its own gatekeepers and vanguardists and you know so on and so forth to to be able to um, you know to to be able to then think about who gets to be political. Right, so there are, there are, there are boxes that you have to take to be. Uh, you know the, the the political purist, as it were, um, and and 
Uh, and that seemed an unhelpful way of thinking about politics, um, especially when I wanted to, for example, look at, uh, you know, in in our in in our uh, in the second chapter with with Debolina, think about how, how do we think about children as political actors? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, these aren't people who, to begin with, are are full citizens in in that sense, and yet if we have to endow their thinking and actions with the with with you know think about them as political actors we'll have to shift frames and the you know the the you know the the frame of of uh of revolutionary politics seemed completely um inadequate but there's another part to this and i mentioned the 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 naxalite movement and in, in close to the end of the first chapter, I do draw on some works of Naxalite poets um, who in fact do something quite fantastic in the way in which um, they speak to the, you know, the frustration of the, uh, of the revolutionary promise on the one hand, but at the same time, don't let go of of a sense of utopia, uh, and what might that be? And it seems that their recourse to uh, a certain kind of humor makes that makes that possible. So, if I could just, you know, quickly read out this little um, poem um, uh, by Srijan Sen um, called Das Kapital, which was published in. Uh, the Thema book of Naxalite poetry, and this is what Sen writes, Karl Marx wrote Das Kapital, his readers swelled their own capital. The lessons that they drew from his pages was invested in building palaces. Then they made the profound assertion, Das Kapital needs full revision. And this is not come, this is something that's not coming from uh, you know, uh, in you know somebody who who belongs to the right. This is um, internal critique uh, uh, of a, of a kind that somehow um, we'd not want to hold on to because it it might produce uh, you know fractures and dissonances. Uh, you know that uh, that might derail a certain promise of. Uh, of of politics. Um, that's that's a very powerful point, Oishik. Um, but I'm going to move you along to my third trope, and I think we'll drop the fourth. The fourth one was activism, which I think we'll drop because I want to move us uh, through to a couple of other points. But the third one is bricolage, um, and you talk um, in your. Uh, new queer politics chapter, chapter four, um, you, in the New India, you describe your essay as written in the form of a bricolage of descriptive re- refractions. Um, and in chapter five, The Silence of Gulberg, you describe your organisation of the essay as a bricolage. And just without wanting to let go of that word refraction as well, um, you um, say somewhere else, or maybe in your preface, that you like the word refraction. It it, um, describes your gaze or your thinking 
better than refraction because refraction has the potential to, to destabilize and bend our disciplined contours of thought. Um, so connectedly, I was also struck by a couple of other words you used. One is um, detour. You talk in one of the chapters, and I haven't been able to find it again, about taking detours in order to um, disrupt the kind of the, the, the academic or legal discipline, scholarly discipline that um, has you've been trained in, in, in your research. And the other word that seems to me um, associated is meandering. So um, do you think, how would you describe your uh, use of the word bricolage? Is it describing your, your method in some ways? And um, what kind of, what purposes does it serve? I think in jest, it's a conceit for the extremely messy ways in which I work. <laughs> I'm absolutely indisciplined as a writer, I think, which both you and Sun would attest to. <laughs> that was the case through the PhD process. Uh, um, so I think I want to make a virtue of the things that I do badly. You know, so, so to, to me, meander, you know, if there's a way to... Uh, uh, yes, all the words not allowed to be used in the thesis, which I didn't actually. So that's how they found their way into this <laughs> book. <laughs> um, but on a slightly more serious note, if I have to kind of defend the use of these words in this book, uh, <laughs> I would think that uh, the, the the word bricolage for me is, uh, if I have to think about it as a method or a way of, you know, how I'm thinking is is how would I put together a, together a whole range of incommensurate elements, uh, things that otherwise don't fit together, um, you know, uh, on their own. That I'll have to put in the work to make them sit together, make make them up, not not make them appear seamless, but at least. Uh, to to make them occupy the same space, you know, the, either the space of my own life and mind or the space of uh, this uh, this book, and we, you know, as the, as the chapters demonstrate, these incommensurate elements are strewn all through uh, uh, the book. So there's of course a certain idea of the double bind or uh, contradictions that run through the book. Uh, the idea of postcolonialism itself posing a certain kind of double-binded subject position, a double-binded, um, you know, political condition. Um, for example, how, how do we live with uh, contradictory instructions and inheritances, you know, one that uh, both promises emancipation and produces, uh, you know, uh, uh, disinheritance at the same time. Um, you know, similarly, there are kind of disciplinary incommensurate disciplinary elements in, 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 in the book. Um, you know, I'm writing from within the discipline of law that I, you know, that, that I'm trained in, but I'm also drawing, drawing on a whole range of other, other disciplinary sources um, that I'm not trained in. Um, and it, it, I'll offer a, a, an interesting aside, as I say this, how the bricolage helped save this book from <laughs> oblivion. Um, at a certain time, the, the reviewer's reports had come in 
and I had signed the contract. But suddenly, uh, you know, my commissioning editor went uh, incommunicado. Uh, he wouldn't reply to any of my emails for several months, not reply to my phone calls, my text messages, so on and so forth. So finally, I had to kind of contact the you know, chief editor at OUP India, who finally called back and said that OUP India has, this is about two years back, uh, has decided to completely scrap its law list. And uh, because they are doing that, uh, they're also decommissioning contracted books. So I got the kind of scare of my life thinking that, you know, they are going to say that, sorry, we are not going to go ahead with this book. Uh, but his immediate response was, but we are going ahead with your book because it is, it is not really law. um so i i I didn't probe further to you know help you know to to ask him what exactly is it then do you think um but i guess it saved the book in many ways the 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 bricolage nature of the uh the incommensurate disciplinary elements um, in in the book, uh, but there's also other kinds of incommensurate elements in, in the forms of the materials I use. Uh, for example, from short stories to judgments to poetry um, to images uh, and 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 films. So um, yeah, so I in in many ways I I have a I had a field day uh, writing these pieces because. I, I, I guess because, uh, you know, I never thought about this as something that would become a book. I didn't have to worry about maintaining uh, uh, disciplinary fidelity. Um, but I think it was disciplinary fidelity at a later time that helped me put the book together um, as a book that comes out of the discipline of law. So. Um, I found something really, really helpful in um, a piece that Margaret Davies wrote on methodology, where she talks about how um, to 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 break away from convention is always about joining with convention. So it's it's happening at the same time. So how much ever I might want to think about doing, uh, you know writing writing or thinking about a book that's avant-garde in nature where I'm kind of pushing against the disciplinary boundaries of law I'm in fact you know joining more strongly with uh, conventions that are already present within the discipline so I'm, I'm glad that bricolage in many ways helped helped me do that that's uh, that's a great story um and no one has yet asked a question or indicated that they'd like to um, join our conversation. So please do it now before we run out of time, if you'd like to. Um, I that's that's so OUP India has not reinstated its law um, law law list. No, because this is related to another question I had for you, which is sort of about the Indian Legal Academy. Um, and from what I see in your work, 
um, I see a blossoming of critical legal studies work um, by Indians, and maybe they're not so much in the Indian Legal Academy, they're maybe more located in the diaspora. Um, but this seems like, a, you know, the worst time that OUP India could stop its law list from, from where I see it. But even in, in, your, um, in your chapter that's a, um, a celebration of Upendra Baxi's 80th birthday, you mentioned that critical legal studies is um, rare um, in the Indian Legal Academy. So could you just um, maybe uh, talk a bit about critical legal studies in the Indian context as well as in the Indian diaspora of legal scholars and how you how you position yourself um, in in that in that frame. Right. Um, so a bit of what I will say will possibly uh, be a repetition of uh, an earlier festival of conversations event that uh, Adil and Devolina had put together about critique in the tropics. Um, and when we were thinking about that uh, uh, that conversation, it was in fact difficult to uh, difficult for us to think about who who do we actually bring together to have this conversation, uh, particularly folks um, who are based in law schools in India. So I think there is a a, a fair amount of critical work that's happening um, by you know, uh, Indian-born scholars or South Asian-born scholars located outside of India. Um, I don't think critical legal studies or critical legal theory in named form is, uh, is very prevalent within Indian law schools. This is not to say that uh, courses are not taught with a critical orientation. Uh, you know, of course, you know, um, the, the several... Uh, well-known and younger scholars uh, who who are doing that, um, uh, but it possibly doesn't always carry the label uh, uh, critical or critique uh, when when that is done. That can, on the one hand, be thought of as a strategic move because that word, uh, you know, uh, one might not really be able to draw students in. It could be kind of alienating or. Um, you know, marginalizing even for those who are doing critical work uh, within uh, Indian law schools. Um, so it could be strategic on one hand, or it could just be a default setting where you don't need recourse to the critical to actually do critique um, uh, in, in many ways. And I think Bakshi is a, is a particularly important example uh, as far as his, his teaching and work that has been done in India is uh, is concerned is that he didn't require that that category uh, mm -hmm. to do the kind of uh, critical legal scholarship that uh, that he's produced. But having said that, I would also add that it's difficult uh, to uh, you know uh, foreground work that is critical and and to make it uh, make students as well as the institution take it seriously. Um, and it's a difficulty that, for example, I and a few others who teach uh, our jurisprudence two course at Jindal Global Law School have, for instance, 
faced the first few weeks or in fact spent trying to convince students why this is as important as jurisprudence one, which is kind of the... Uh, the I, you know, I, I think that's not so dissimilar from um, Australian law schools in many respects. So, yes. Um, look, I think we're heading towards concluding. Um, so as we head towards concluding, I'd like to just quote something from Vasuki Nasaya's wonderful preface. Um, no, sorry, forward. Your, yours is the preface. Um, she says, Oishik's critique of the law and the injustices it has wrought in the name of justice also loves wrestling the law for the space that justice struggles demand. Um, and I, I totally agree. And I hope that the idea of wrestling the law for the space that justice struggles demand is a project that we're all engaged in and a project that we can all love. Um, so in many ways, Oishik, although you describe yourself as pessimistic um, and the negative of the negative spaces um, sometimes does come through. And in your discussion, your, your not just not your discussion of failures, but your super, super awareness of failures, um, that despite all of that, you, you know, your love for this wrestle with the law for space, um, not for your space, but for the space of uh, the, the quotidian struggles um, is, is shines through. Um, so I think your book helps us reflect on this collective project and helps us to replenish our solidarity in this shared commitment of love. Um, and I wholeheartedly want to thank Boishik for the journey or perhaps more aptly the quest that he shares with, with us in this book. Um, and I hope the lost container finds its way to discovery um, and that its contents travel to our bookstores and letterboxes in the very near future. Um, and Oishik, we look forward to the next book, which will be published, um, I think, next year by Cambridge University Press, which is finally the thesis uh, we'll get that the... the um, the airspace that, it, that it's been longing for all this time. So congratulations. And, hope, and hopefully that, that'll not be lost in a in a container like <laughs> like like I this so. one. But I do do really want to say that the journey of this book is so, so closely connected to so many of you who've joined in. And I, I just want to thank everybody here, friends and, and mentors and, and comrades who've who've been such an important part of this journey and it's absolutely so so special to be able to have this conversation about violent modernities at no other place but at at ila so it's just fantastic for me and you know thank you dai thank thanks Sandhya, for for this our pleasure thanks Oishik. thanks dai okay bye marvelous. everyone You've been listening to the ILLA podcast. To find out more, go to soundcloud.com forward slash ILLA podcast. That's double I-L-A-H podcast.